Um, Irina asked me to just say a little bit about my um, accoutrements. Um, so this is called Rakasu. It's five panels. Um, when Zen or Buddhism Zen uh, came to China, the culture was not as um, uh, dana uh, focus. So the monks had to work. So it gets a little bit awkward, the big row. So they created this. Uh, or uh, Actually, it's really a, more of a Japanese than a Korean. Koreans have the bigger one. Have you seen Wusham? She has one now. Um, so we use it for study, for travel, for more informal Dharma thing. I, I didn't want to bring everything. I have the, you know, full thing like you see um, on like Theravada monks. Mine's brown now. In our tradition, in the Suzuki Roshi tradition, uh, now, when they first started, everyone had black rakasu, lay or priest. But now, if you took the lay precepts, you have a blue one of these. You have a priest, you get a black one, and then when you're fully Dharma transmitted, you get this one. And Dharma transmitted means you're technically your teacher has given you her mind, her mind seal is the expression. Uh, and in practicality, it means the teacher has complete confidence in you to be a teacher. And traditionally, you would go off and start your own temple. Uh, and so when we travel, it always sits in the highest spot, never sits on the floor. That's why I always put on something. And um, sutras and dharma things always go in a sutra cover, or when you're traveling, you can put it in the same pocket. So that's the, behind that. Yeah, we used to kid around and says, you know, when you ordain, you just get so many stuff. You get new bowls, and you get or one of these, and the big thing, and you actually get, uh, we wear a, a shirt called Juban. It's white, like a kimono, but like a shirt. And then a uh, kimono, under clothing kind of kimono. And then uh, for a priest, it's called Koromo. Long sleeve Chinese, from the Chinese. And then you wear your bokesa from the kashaya, right, over. This is called hapari, which is part of pants too. We have pants too, then it's called samugi or samue, and it's work clothing. And if you were in Japan, like at Zen Center, we're much more relaxed because for a long time you couldn't buy these things except from Japan, and so they were really expensive. And Zen Center actually started a sewing company a long, long time ago to start making stuff. Um, and so it's not required as much, but um, like my practice in Japan, you can only wear a samugi or your robes. Um, variations of your robe, like with this or with the whole thing. And there are times you put it on, you put it off, lots of... You can't wear it in the bathroom, that's why I'm always leaving my out there. Yeah, part, well, the whole thing is a samugi, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's very gender. Uh, the men get to take this off when it's hot. They can wear a white t-shirt even underneath, but 
I will uh, just to give you this one thing. Just uh, yes, it's unfair. And there was this um, at, in Vietnam. They, I, I think I said they sit two hours at a time, three times a day, every day. They don't have any time off. At Tassajara, in the Japanese tradition, every day that ends in a four and a nines or five day week, you get ten hours off to clean your clothes and sleep, <laughs> go hiking or whatever in Tassajara. In Japan, you get four hours off. In Vietnam, they get no time off. Except, it's really sexist, but it works to your advantage. Um, when you're bleeding, you're impure, so you can't go in the meditation hall. But then that's when you get to rest. <laughs> and then in their tradition, um, they believe the Buddha took 49 days to become enlightened. So they, um, they rotate, like the nunnery I was in, which I was going to talk about a little bit, um, were a hundred nuns, and they kind of rotate a 49-day retreat. They have like five, you know, kutis, um, huts for individual. But I was told that they slept a lot when they were there. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I'm sorry I was late earlier. Um, the world is already starting to crowd in. Uh, I realized around dinner time that I had to um, confirm my flight for tomorrow evening. And then I went to do that, but then it's only in a 24-hour period. And my flight's at 6.45, so then I thought I could do that and come here, but then I couldn't print my boarding pass. So. And I obsessively just kept clicking. But luckily, probably because we've been sitting, I only did it four times. So. <laughs> I hope they don't turn on something and, you know, have a lot of my boarding passes tomorrow. <laughs> Somebody's going to have to help me tomorrow. <laughs> so um, thinking about um, that the, the world is going to come at us tomorrow, um, I, you know, the last Dharma talk, um, official Dharma talk, and um, the fact that actually uh, the day after tomorrow, the 31st, Friday, um, is Lunar New Year. Do people know what Lunar New Year is? Or you guys call it probably Chinese New Year. It's based on the lunar calendar. And do people know the Vietnamese version? It's called Tet. Um, T-E-T. Uh, with the accent. Um, and it's kind of like Christmas and New Year rolled in one. People take a, at least a week off. Um, flying into and out of Vietnam during that time is really difficult. A lot of it has to do that it's a time to go back and um, clean. You kind of have a big cleaning, purifying thing, including cleaning your ancestral grave sites. It's, they do it more than that, but that's the time. And, you know, people get new clothes, kids, and you get the red envelopes, like that. I actually was at the nunnery uh, in 2007 when, um, six or seven, when it was Tet, and um, I was awakened at four in the morning to go roll these. Uh, so the food for Tet is uh, this sticky rice roll, 
um, about this big, and inside vegetarian is mung beans. That's like mash, and um, there's a coconut flavor to it. Though there's no coconut in it, and pepper, and maybe some other spices that I don't know of. I was there to roll it. They had been up since two, and someone had been up roasting the coconut to get the coconut flavor, and then you have to steam them for like 10 hours. It was a big process, and 500, 500 women came to the nunnery side, lay people, to practice. Literally, you know, like a, I don't know if you guys have it, I have like a shiki bouton in my cabin, you know, narrow, we're like next to each other in each room. It's pretty amazing, though, how they, lots of good food. Uh, but anyway, so the, the cake, or the sticky rice, um, is called bantet, or, you know, bun is cake, so New Year's cake, and the north is called banjung, just different dialect, so. Um, so thinking about, so Happy New Year, which is chukmungnamai. I thought I would talk about um, right intention something to take us out in the world with. And then I'm going to do it in the context of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's version from this book called Taste of Earth and Other Vietnamese uh, Legends of Vietnam, Other Legends of Vietnam, um, done by Thich Nhat Hanh, about how the rice cakes came into being. So... Right intention, of course, is the second factor. Of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, It's part of the wisdom triad, uh, right after right view, or right um, understanding. And um, it's the kind of the bridge. So with right intention, um, it conditions are uh, the, the group, the, tri- the, tri- the triad of behavior, right? Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Um, and uh, the Pali word is samas, sankapa, and the uh, Sanskrit is samyak uh, samkalpa. So sama, uh, does mean right, um, but more as not so much right and wrong, but as in perfect or complete and hold. Here I like to think of it as perhaps like true or in alignment with, but that's just my interpretation. <laughs> and uh, uh, sankapa or samkalpa uh, is translated as purpose, intention, resolve, aspiration, motivation. It's also literally though means thinking or thought. So sometimes it is considered right thought. And we can see that, how they're related, uh, from the Dhammapada. It goes, all that we are is the result of what we have thought. If a man speaks or acts with an evil thought, pain follows him, as the wheels follow the foot of the ox that draws the carriage. All that we are is the result of what we have thought. 
It is founded on our thought. It is made up of our thoughts. If a man speaks or acts with a pure thought, happiness follows him like a shadow that never leaves him. So again, uh, right uh, intention is part of the wisdom and it's considered the purposive part of our uh, thinking and uh, wise view or wise under- right view or wise view or understanding is the cognitive aspect of thought. So that's how the intention is the the purposive part of our thinking. So Bhikkhu Bodhi says, right intention claims the second place in the path between right view and the triad of moral factors that begins with right speech because the mind's intentional function forms the crucial link connecting our cognitive perspective with our modes of active engagement in the world. On the one side, action always points back to the thoughts from which they spring. Thought is the forerunner of action, directing body and speech, stirring them into activity, using them as its instruments for expressing its aims and ideals. These aims and ideals or intentions, in turn, points back to further step to the prevailing views. When wrong view prevails, the outcome is wrong intention, giving rise to unwholesome actions. And that the application of the mind needed to achieve those goals is what is meant by right intention. So when we reflect on intention, we obviously then have to also take into into take into account the effect of the act that it has upon not only ourselves, but on other people. So the impact of our intention is equally important. So if the intention is wholesome, say rooted in giving love and wisdom, and it helps myself by helping me to be more giving, more loving, wiser, and it helps others, uh, helps them to be more giving, loving, and wise, then my deeds and my actions are wholesome, good, and more. So in the middle-length discourses, the Buddha noticed two categories of his thoughts, right? Uh, what he calls wrong, or we like to say more unwise intention, which is desire and lust, ill will, and harmfulness or violence. And then the, uh, he also noticed that he had right or wise intentions, uh, which are renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness. Obviously, the lather set counters the formal, and by strengthening renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness, we dispel the former. So uh, tonight, I'd like to talk about these wise intention, these positive qualities, um, through this story. By the way, Lunar New Year is celebrated by Chinese, Vietnamese, Koreans, Tibetan, Mongolians. Uh, the, the Japanese did before 1873 when um, the West came. All right. 
So this is a kind of a little condensed version of the story. Um, and the story is called Earth Cakes, Sky Cakes. Though Leo was a son of King Hung Vung I, he did not live as luxuriously as the other princes and princesses of the kingdom. His mother, one of the king's consorts, preferred a simple country life. To her, wealth was unnecessary. She asked for nothing from the king and taught her son to live simply in order to have the time to learn what was truly worthwhile in life. One day, the king issued a decree that each prince was to prepare a special dish to offer at the ancestral altar on New Year's Day. He said that each offering should express deep respect and gratitude to the ancestors. Because Leo lived in the country far from the palace, he learned of the decree much later than his brothers. What's more, his mother had recently died and he had no one to counsel him about palace etiquette. He thought about the king's decree. It was like a competition. The prince who brought the most precious and delicious dish would surely be commended and perhaps even given a high post. Liu had no money to buy exotic ingredients, nor did he possess great skill as a cook. He felt disturbed. He believed the kingdom flourished because of the virtue and knowledge people possessed and not because they had the wealth to prepare exotic cuisine. He resolved not to enter the contest and took a long walk to try and forget about it. That night he went to bed without supper. His mother appeared to him in a dream. She smiled kindly and said, My son, you have misunderstood the king. He does not demand wealth nor fancy skill as a cook. He is looking only for a good heart, and I know you that I know you and that I know you possess. Leo wanted to ask his mother what she meant, but she only smiled and pointed to the rice fields with one hand and to the sky with the other. When Leo awoke, he thought about his dream. Yes, his mother was surely right. The king was looking for more than exotic food. How could Leo best express his gratitude and respect to the ancestors? And how could he show his desire to protect all that the ancestor had built? Could he do it without using rare and precious ingredients? He thought about his mother's clue, one hand pointing to the rice fields and the other hand pointing to the blue sky. Of course. The square-shaped patties were an image of earth and the blue sky an image of heaven. Earth nourished the people, heaven watched over them. These were the most precious gifts bequeathed them by the goddess mother and dragon father. In the mythology of how Vietnam came into being, uh, there was a goddess mother and a dragon father. Lil sat looking out over the rice fields all morning, at noon, he had an idea. He walked back to his hut and soaked a pot of sweet rice after selecting the most perfect grains. He also soaked a pot of beans, yellow mung beans, right, and placed them on the rice to cook. He gathered fresh banana leaves in the forest. He planned to make some cakes that were square-shaped to represent Mother Earth and all the plants that flourished on her. 
He used sweet rice because it was the people's most basic and essential food, enjoyed by even the poorest families in the kingdom. He filled the cakes with bean paste. He he made it, boiled it. Um, And uh, I'm trying to condense it a little bit. So after he made it, that night, his mother visited him again in a dream. She did not speak, but her smile told Leo how pleased she was with the cakes. In the morning, he put on a clean robe and sandals and carried the cakes in two baskets balanced on a shoulder yoke. By the time he reached the palace, the other princes had already placed their exotic and fancy dishes on the ancestral altar. Leo suddenly felt ashamed at how humble his offerings was. He feared his brothers would laugh at him. Nonetheless, he placed his cakes on the altar next to the other offerings. He looked and some of the dishes were made with delicate ingredients which could only be found in the deepest reaches of the forest or upon the highest mountains. Others were cooked from rare ingredients, fish from the fished from the hearts of river or the depths of the sea. So the king was looking at them, and he paused when he reached the earth and sky cakes. He asked Leo how he had made them and whether their shapes had any meaning. He gazed at Leo for a long, quiet moment. Leo felt uneasy standing there among his richly clad brothers. The king asked to taste the two cakes and then complimented Leo on their good flavor. He moved on to carefully examine all the other dishes. A month later, Leo was summoned to the palace. The king told him that because he possessed the heart, piety, and talent to protect the kingdom and honor the ancestors, the king intended to pass the throne on to him. Leo was overcome with surprise and asked the king how he had arrived at such a decision. The king told him that the earth and sky cakes had been enough to let him know that Leo would be a worthy king. Later, the king announced his decision to the people. Not one of the other princes expressed any resentment or jealousy. And so Leo, who had been raised in the simple countryside, became King Hung Vung II. He taught the people how to make earth and sky cakes telling them that it was not skill in cooking that mattered, but a heart filled with love and gratitude. To this day, Vietnamese families offer such cakes on their ancestral altars at Tet. Their hearts fill with love for their homeland. Sweet, huh? So... The three wise intention, qualities of wise intention, are renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness. So in the story, um, in terms of renunciation, so if renunciation sounds too dry and uh, stingy, maybe you can think of relinquishment. Um, So classically, of course, uh, we're renouncing attachment. Right. And um, I'd like to think here, uh, you know, I actually heard this in a retreat from a teacher at Spirit Rock that 
um, when we come on a retreat, what we're really renouncing is we're renouncing our habits of thoughts, right? Our patterns of thoughts. Uh, keep letting them go, right? Our papancha. <laughs> uh, so, in the story, right, he, like us, had ideas, right? Conceptualized what the one that it's a competition, what the king was asking, one that it's a competition, that he doesn't have riches like his brothers, right? Uh, and so he gives up. Right? So his mother shows up and tells him the right view, the right understanding, that the king is really looking for um, someone who could show the ancestral spirit. I have a line missing here. Uh, And, uh, you know, it said that he worried about it and then he went to bed without supper. And he was so distracted with his, you know, worrying and thinking. So, um, renunciation in in Pali, Gil Fransdahl says the word is akemma, which is the etymology means to go out or to go forth. So uh, in, the, in the commentary, um, it talks about how you have a, a dusty closed-in house or cabin, and it's like the, the feeling of going from that into a wide open space. So um, if we're able to let go of the confinement of our uh, associative patterns of thought, then we can open up into other possibilities. So in terms of uh, the intention of non-aversion, or loving kindness, or unconditional friendliness, which is classically uh, thought of as goodwill. So again, Lil gets help from his mother, right? She's a ghost or a spirit. Um, So to me, that's kind of like thinking that she's not our habitual, kind of obsessive kind of thinking. Um, and maybe you could say that uh, she's either intuition or big mind. Um, uh, so she comes to help to remind uh, us or him that his habitual way of thinking was not the, all there is. So there's more to it than that, right? So that it's easier to renounce. So in that, in a way, moves from the head, right, our thinking, to the heart. If we, I think, when I think about intention, um, e- even though it's in that group and the etymology is thought, but when I think of intention, I often think about my heart, don't you think? You know, when you, you know, like this kind of movement, or, or it comes from your gut. So a very body thing. And uh, the... Uh, traditional practice uh, to how to cultivate non-aversion is, of course, metta. So, again, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, metta here is not just sentimental goodwill, nor is it a conscientious respond to a moral imperative or divine command. It must become a deep inner feeling characterized by spontaneous warmth rather than by a sense of obligation. So one way, like Leo, we need uh, that our intention of non-aversion 
is to kind of come back to um, our rudder. Like I think of goodwill as like our, our intention as our rudder, right? Um, and notice that he had all these aversive thoughts, right? He was the terrible two is too poor, too, you know, doesn't have the resources, and that his, his <coughs> brothers were the terrible yous, right? You're too rich, too much access to exotic things. So our tendency is to see outside us make, making us or keeping us from maintaining our wise or right intention. Um, so if we can bring it back to what, it, what is it that we um, want to, to align our values with, how will, how will we um, condition our um, actions, right? Influence kind of condition. So for Leo, his intention is that he believed that the kingdom flourish because of the virtues and knowledge Vietnamese people possess. So when he could remember that, then he could act from a place that's not just about his ideas about himself as not being worthy enough. So in terms of the intention of non-injury, compassion, or harmlessness, again, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the intention of harmlessness is thought guided by compassion. So for Leo, that meant pausing, you know, all his rumination and worries, reflecting on what he thought was most important about the king's challenge, and then enacting that. Again, which is to show the best of his and everyday's people of Vietnam life, right? To showcase what was most basic and essential. So in the story, he says, he thought about his mother's clue, one hand pointing to the rice fields and one hand pointing to the blue sky. Of course, the square-shaped patties were an image of earth and the blue sky an image of heaven. Earth nourished the people, heaven watched them, over them, and were, these were the most precious gifts bequeathed them by the goddess, mother, and dragon father. Leo sat looking out over the rice field all morning, He meditated, you could say. At noon, he had an idea, right? He walked back to his hut, soaked a pot of sweet rice after selecting the most perfect grains. He also soaked a pot of beans and then placed them on the fire to cook. He gathered fresh banana leaves in the forest. He planned to make some cakes that were square-shaped to represent Mother Earth and all the plants that flourished on her. He used sweet rice because it was the people's most basic an essential food enjoyed by even the poorest families in the kingdom. So as he sat and reflected, um, he realized instead of what he could, you know, he thinks he should be, that's exactly where he is and what he can do about what he has, right? And with um, the resources that he has. So he accepts himself and what he can do in his present conditions. And from that, he then could act from a place that was true to himself, his experience. So again, by being able to honor and show respect and gratitude to the ancestor, 
remembering his true intention, um, he was able to make the New Year's cake. So, at the New Year, when a time in which um, it's close enough to the calendar, you know, the Gregorian New Year, um, a time which often we reflect and think about um, how to put our best foot forward, how to have a new start. Um, it's useful to remember, right, the intention of renunciation uh, of our thoughts and how we think things are or should be, um, and that there are other ways to look at it, right? And the intention of non-aversion or loving-kindness, right? Bringing the focus back to our skillful conduct of body, speech, and mind. And the intention of non-injury or compassion or harmlessness by showing respect and gratitude for all beings. So... Um, in a way, we can think here, as we've been here cleaning our inner house this week or this five days, uh, of realigning ourselves to our true intentions, our true values, our aspirations, to live from love and wisdom, from our true nature. So, Joanna May. Macy, from Schooling Our Intention, says, Action isn't a burden to be hoisted up and lugged around on our shoulders. It is something we are. The work we have to do can be seen as a kind of coming alive, more than some moral imperative. It's an awakening to our true nature, a releasing of our gifts. This flow-through of energy and ideas is at every moment directed by our choice. That's our role in it. We're like a lens that can focus or a gate that can direct this flow through by schooling our intention. In each moment, our intention gives this energy direction. Thank you for your attention. Are there any questions or comments? Should I turn this off now?